thanks for, for coming, everybody. It's great to see so many of you here. And we've got a lot to get through, I think. So I think we'll try and I think we'll start on time um, because it's just <coughs> going to be... It's such a fascinating topic and we had such a lot of interest um, around this topic as well. Um, so I'm Jo Hawkins. Um, I'm a project manager at the Innovation Quarter and I'm also a historian as, as well. Um, and today we've brought together a number of startup founders uh, and researchers together to share insights into um, power, technology and society. And I think, yeah, we're going to raise some really interesting um, questions and, and try and answer them today. Um, so, of course, technology is not value neutral. And I think this is best exemplified by Google's mantra, don't be evil. It's obviously, it's created in um, certain, by, by individuals and groups in certain contexts. And, um, and I think, when I think about technological disruption, I mean, we're seeing, we have seen and we're seeing that it has the potential to create this uh, radical change to our economy and, and political systems and, and culture. Um, it's already doing this. And, but I think what we want to discuss today is who are the winners and, and who are the losers. Um, and, I, and I was thinking actually about Uber and Airbnb in particular, and I was thinking, you know, they provide consumers with cheap and efficient modes of transport and accommodation. And, and personally, I've used both Uber and Airbnb. But of course, also, these companies are transforming our labour markets in ways um, that, you know, the, the sharing economy that has been created changes the way people work, how they're rewarded for that work, and actually the ability of our government to um, regulate their working conditions. So there's a lot of upsides and, and downsides here. Um, and so today we're going to address three main questions, I think. Um, and the first one is, to what extent do tech companies represent the public interest and where do they succeed and where do they fail? Uh, the second question is, um, what kind of ethical dilemmas does a startup founder face on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm really interested in that, what it looks like um, in, a, in a practical sense. And then finally, uh, can university researchers add any value to uh, these conversations and, and help enhance um, these discussions? So, um, and I've also got to say, we've got a special guest here today, Labor MP Tim Hammond. Thanks very much for coming today. Yeah, Tim's the uh, Shadow Assistant Minister um, for Innovation, the Digital Economy <clears throat> and Startups. So, and so, yeah, great to have you here and participating in this discussion as well. So I'm going to introduce our four terrific panellists. And every month, I think we can't, you know, match the panellists that we had last month, surely, you know. And again, we've kind of done it with some really um, fascinating people. Uh, we've got Eunice Sari. So Eunice is, uh, worked as a UWA <coughs> lecturer and researcher and within our School of Education and specialised in e-learning and mobile technologies. She's a leading UX expert in Southeast Asia. And when I say UX, it's, I mean a user experience. So basically, um, Eunice yeah, applies insights into human behaviour to create beautiful, intuitive <laughs> websites and apps <laughs> that, that just kind of work. Um, and, uh, and she's also a co-founder and CEO of her own company, UX Indonesia, uh, has worked as a mentor with Google accelerators and launch pads, um, which is really interesting. Uh, we then have Adrian Peterson, who's the co-founder and CEO of Verivote, 
which is a company who's been in the media a lot recently. They've designed a um, secure electronic voting system, which he'll tell us a little bit about. Um, and he's done all of this while completing his, um, well, you've been working on your PhD in maths and statistics, which is on hold at the moment. But yeah, Adrian's a, he's a serial entrepreneur as well. He's also a, and, and a volunteer. He works at the Bloom Labs, our local social, um, our local startup hub, and also founded a coffee company <coughs> as well. Yep. No problem, just <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, and we have Andrew Walker from Fleet Engineering. Uh, Andrew's a UWA grad. He's the founder and CEO of Fleet. And this company has developed, it's a startup, it's developed a range of products to help companies efficiently manage large fleets of vehicles. And Fleet is really unique because they actually work with us here on campus at UWA. They're embedded in our School of Computer Science and Software Engineering. It's quite a Silicon Valley model, really. And I love working with Andrew because the Fleet values are just so aligned with UWA it's, and they're really intellectually engaged with a lot of the stuff that we do as well, which is really great to see, and I can't wait to see more <laughs> companies doing the same. Uh, and finally, last but not least, Tor Harper. Thank you for joining us today. Um, a lecturer in communication and media studies here at UWA. His research explores how digital media can foster engagement and participation in areas such as democracy, education and the arts. Uh, his latest book is called Democracy in the Age of New Media. And uh, he investigates these issues using lots of different methods, um, but one of which is critical theory, which I won't go into, but it's basically a body of scholarship concerned with critiquing social structures and systems of power in order to foster positive social change. Um, and so I'm really interested in his feedback as well. So I'm the least interesting person on this panel, I think, and I can't wait to get them talking. So I'm going to start with Eunice, and um, I'd love to hear um, your response to the topic, um, how, yeah, you, your insights into ethics um, and the startup world from your experience. Okay. Um, to start, please. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, my response to your questions is actually uh, startup is quite a unique entity. Um, I've been working with a lot of startups, especially in Indonesia, and also startups in emerging countries. So with, uh, they are quite different from the startup here because uh, uh, usually like, uh, it, came, uh, it started up with uh, like, uh, the founder's idea, they have an idea. And uh, it's a new, new phenomenon like, uh, right now because the people used to work with other people. Right now they, they want to be different, which is quite unique and quite different, quite difficult um, in the environment, like uh, in emerging countries. Uh, so uh, when, they, when they decided to become a startup, it's a big commitment, it's a big sacrifice, because a lot of people will say, oh, why do you go into the startup? Because it's a, such a risky thing, and then uh, uh, they, they might not be successful. And uh, like a shame value, like a face value is very important in those countries. So when they come into, or uh, when they become a startup, they usually like uh, work really, really hard. And then uh, right now, like uh, the, uh, the climate in like emerging countries, there are a lot of uh, uh, companies from Silicon Valley, they want to pour a lot of monies. Uh, a lot of money in Indonesia, a lot of money in Brazil, in Mexico, in India. 
And um, well, they, when they come into like a attic, they sometimes really do not know, do not have any idea because it's such a like a, you know like a, if you think about Silicon Valley in 2000, so they have no idea how how like uh, how the thing should be you know should be done, and what they need is like a, how I can make my startup work, so how I can reach a lot of people, how I can get as much as data as possible. So sometimes it's not that they don't care, but they do not know. Uh, no, they do not know yet. The, uh, the regulation is still like a, uh, being developed at the moment. So I just came back from Korea like last week. We are talking about the, like, uh, the tech ecosystem and the policy with Google and uh, with all the, uh, the policy makers in uh, South Korea and uh, how we can engage the startup to know more about the ethic of uh, like, uh, the data privacy and things like that. So it's, mm -hmm. it's still developing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but it's quite interesting, like, uh, because uh, those developers they have a strong, uh, you know, like uh, they have a very strong uh, influence to, uh, like, uh, to the ecosystem in general. Yeah. Okay. And I think we'll definitely come back to yeah. that. How so. um, these companies regulate themselves. Okay. Um, what about you, Adrian? What do, what do you think? What's your been your experience as a startup founder in practice? What does this look like? Yeah, well, I think, you know, he's had some good points about how, as a founder, I'm, I just, we just see problems and we want to solve them and create the best value for our customers or people in general. Um, so I think that might be best illustrated by explaining a little bit about what we're actually about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, we think that voting should be electronic, but no existing solutions provide the security necessary. And then, so a lot of the faces, uh, the challenges that we're facing is actually differentiating ourselves from existing electronic voting solutions, which might be implemented in countries like America or Brazil or Estonia. Um, so the way that it typically happens is if you want to secure votes or data, you build a big wall up around it and you hope that no one can climb over and actually change the votes inside. But when that is the case, um, you have to trust the person that builds those walls and protects that database. So if I were to go to the person who's actually doing that and offered them $10 billion to influence the outcome of an Australian federal election, that's a huge problem because so much is at stake. And that's why it's, that's a key difference between voting and a financial transaction. A lot of people will oversimplify the problem itself and say, oh, if we can bank online, why can't we vote online? And that's the reason. It's just so much more is at stake. And we see $2 billion in a year in like online um, tra transaction fraud. And even if you can trust a person uh, administering the election process, like we would trust our government in Australia, but maybe we wouldn't in governments around the world, if someone can get over that wall, it's no different for them to actually change one vote or all of the votes and influence the total outcome of the election. And yeah, so we think Australia has done a pretty good job using the paper-based system so far. It has its own faults, like we saw in the 2013 election. We lost a box of votes just because they fell off the back of a truck, and that cost Australian taxpayers $20 million. And we see the problems in the last election, like we're um, still counting votes weeks after the fact, and this is costing so much money. But there really hasn't been the innovation that has allowed voting to transition into the digital age, in our opinion. 
So where we come in is um, we think that the Bitcoin blockchain provides our innovation. And so essentially what this is, it's a public pin-up board so that anyone can put information up and anyone can see it, but no one can take anything down or change it. And this has allowed Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency, to grow to a market capitalization of $7 billion. And yeah, so that's... Um, the fundamental thing that we're doing is storing votes in the blockchain and this is a pretty pretty obvious application and no one has really cracked it yet and we think this is the way that votes electronic voting will go um, and all paper-based voting will move towards there and yeah so the problems that we face technically are providing the anonymity and coercion resistance and things that people dedicate their life to actually researching in academia mm -hmm. in online voting solutions but they focus on a small subset of the problem rather than piecing all of everything together to actually commercialise this. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. The, yeah, those questions are just so deeply embedded in mm. everything, in the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. Fantastic. So, I guess what we're trying to achieve is the fairest election um, possible for the Australian public so that we can remove this disconnection between young people and the actual governance of the country. Wow, big, big challenges. Um, and, and Andrew as well, another startup co-founder, or a startup founder, um, who, who, and I, we've discussed this before, You've, you and your team have discussions like this all the time, don't you? Yes, um, I would say it is very embedded in our culture as a startup. Everyone's got, so you think of um, software developers as kind of nerds who keep to themselves, they've actually got very robust political and ethical views and we have very very long philosophical discussions around software patents and whether those are a good idea or not or you know whether that that process is unethical in itself you know what what uber's like as an organization and you know whether it's okay for to use technology to disrupt regulation and i sit on the side of no, it's not. It's not even technological, you know, it's not technological disruption, it's just regulatory disruption and they're just using technology to kind of have un unruly influence. And uh, it was interesting talking about voting. So um, how many of your friends get all of their news now from, from the news feed in Facebook or the new, or, you know, whatever they get in Google and... Um, you know, we just we were debating how long it would be before someone kind of paid Facebook to influence the news feeds slightly to the left or to the right as part of an election and really influence it one way or the other. We saw they had they kind of um, Facebook got caught out running tests on um, on people whether or not they could make people sadder. Anyone see that? Hmm. And uh, so, but from a startup's perspective, you've got to kind of got to subdivide what I say into kind of startup things that I know a lot about and sort of hashtag what I reckon when we start talking about <laughs> Uber or Facebook or whatever. Um, <laughs> so in terms of what it's like as a startup, I'd say from it was it's more of an issue than I ever thought it was and it's, and it's sort of from day dot. So the opportunities to be unethical sort of arrive the first time we imported stuff from China and you know, our supplier sort of said, hey, what, what do you want me to put as the value on the import? I said, what it cost, you know? But but very easy to turn around and say, oh, I just put 20 bucks, so I don't have to pay any tax, or that sort of thing. And then uh, when you're, you're desperate to get clients, so you're speaking to clients, and uh, so our business is, um, all of our revenue comes from sort of GPS tracking of fleets of vehicles, and then we're developing technology to let anyone start their own Uber or on-demand type service. But in the vehicle tracking world, people are using it for safety purposes. Um, when we had about two clients 
we we had a really great opportunity. Someone got referred to us who, who were doing uh, doing tracking of uh, long haul long haul kind of road transport for a very large freight provider. And they said, oh, can your system do this, this, and this? Can you kind of compare speed limits to the, to the speed they're going? I said, yeah, we can do that, no worries. They said, uh, can you export to CSV? I said, yeah, yeah, we, so you can do that for, for whatever analysis. They said, oh, great, because we need to be able to change the values of the speeds before we, before we send the report. Like, <laughs> I said, oh, jeez. And then they said, uh, one more thing, can we have our server on-premise? Because we're in the, you know, we host our, all our stuff in a data center, and then we you know, host stuff in, now in Amazon because it's easier to expand. We said, oh, not, not really, why do you need that? And they said, well, you know, we're going to change these values. So if there's some major incident, there's a crash and the investigators come knocking on the door, we want to be able to throw the server in the river. I said, um, <laughs> maybe we won't do business together. <laughs> um, but these sort of things sort of come up um, quite early on. And because we're in the business of collecting data, um, opens a whole range of other things. How, what are we doing with data and what are our customers doing with data? And um, from the what are our customers doing, um, we find it uh, at least our responsibility to educate them on their responsibilities. And when we handle data, we're, we're learning things that are issues that we didn't really think were issues. I think I mentioned to you uh, Uber were in the news again for... Um, They've got God mode, that they call it, where, where one map shows all of the locations of all of their vehicles, and they got in trouble for when they were quite young as a company. Um, they'd have staff parties, and they'd have God mode up on the, on the screen and kind of having bets on who was going home with who and that sort of thing. And so um, we started thinking, well, you know, we're small and everyone kind of shares that password so that we can run tests on code. Maybe we should be thinking now about how do we decide who can see what data and when. So there's, so there's lots, lots of different issues in all sorts of different directions that we're dealing with all the time. Um, but I'd say we as a company are very, very heavily engaged in discussing those things. And the main reason is because good, really good people care a lot about that stuff. And so uh, we had to sort of start establishing our character as a company quite early on to make sure we could attract good people and keep them. I mean, if we'd made different decisions on some of these things, people we want would have just walked out the door and gone somewhere else. So lots more to say, but I won't keep waffling. Well, no, we'll <laughs> keep the discussion going. But, yeah, that's really interesting. And it's funny enough, talking about data, I was reading about the Internet of Things recently, and the thing that's most... Uh, or the companies that are most excited about the Internet of Things are insurers because if you can track the food going in your fridge, the speed of your car, where you're going, how often you go to the gym, uh, all of a sudden insurance becomes very, very uh, detailed. One, one more story before you go on. So collecting data on how fast people are driving, right? So someone, someone very close to me uh, offered to be an early test subject and uh, very quickly the data came back that they were a reckless driver speeding around the place and we had to sort of decide, well, now that we know this, do we have to do something about it? A, should we do something about it? What should, what should we do? I eventually, I eventually told his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he shortly after unplugged the device. <laughs> wow. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, moving on to tall. So I'd love to, um, yeah, have some insights from your research and, and into this topic. Okay. Um, yes, forgive me, I'm a bit ill. So if I sound a bit guttural... That's fine. Um, I researched media and, and communication, and I started looking... I really started my research career looking at political philosophy and political theory. And um, 
one thing that became very obvious to me is so much of our engagement with the world is shaped by the technology that mediates that engagement. Um, technology, you know, you, you kind of say technology is not neutral. The, the Kranzberg's law is technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Technology absolutely shapes the way that we come to understand the world and for things like democracy, um, politics, um, that is kind of crucial and fundamental. So my research tends to examine uh, how technology kind of either abstracts us away from certain ways of living or creates other ways of, of existing. Um, you know, Heidegger kind of stuff, Husserl, um, our sense of being in the world is shaped by the technologies that we use. Um, for instance, the telescope over there, I think that, that reminds me, uh, Hannah Arendt does this spiel about how the world changed once somebody looked through a telescope. Um, the difference in a sense of your purpose in the world when you think that uh, basically you get up in the morning and the sun revolves around you and the moon and the stars revolve around you as a human compared to you look through a telescope and all of a sudden you realise, oh no, we're just an insignificant speck on this remote planet on the edge of a universe. Um, that kind of, the technology is simple compared to the technologies we're talking about today. But the change in worldview that that creates is really, really significant. Um, so most of my research is, is looking at um, the ways in which technologies change our understanding of reality, um, but more specifically politics, political engagement, expression, personal expression in particular. Um, yeah, very broadly. Fantastic. Well, um, and I forgot to mention earlier, we're going to take some questions from the floor, but also we've got Slido up here, um, really easy to engage with. There's some worksheets um, around. You can access Slido on your mobile phone, slido.com. Um, you can join the Slido meetup. Uh, and you just enter our event code IQ meetup, and you could submit questions and vote on questions as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask for a question from the floor in just a sec, but I'm going to take my role as a moderator and my, the benefit of that and ask uh, Eunice a quick question before I do so. And that's uh, it's to do with something that you mentioned at the outset. You were talking about um, the policy making among uh, among Google and, and these large companies. And I, it got me thinking, so as a, I guess as a UI, UX um, expert, there's, and, and all of you actually can probably relate to this, so there's certain technical standards that you adhere to uh, when you're developing software and, and trying to solve these problems using technology. Should we develop moral standards? Um, is there, so, you know, we might think about speed, efficiency and reliability in a technical sense, but could we all work together at a set of moral standards uh, to do with privacy, democracy and equi equity? Do the policy discussions that you've been having recently reflect that kind of thing? Okay, so it's actually very interesting that I found out this uh, from the first sources in Google. Uh, they actually have a, like a theme, um, like a, on the like a high level. It's a policy uh, team, and then they have a team that is uh, outside uh, the Silicon Valley. And this, like, uh, the team in, um, in Silicon Valley actually work with a lot of lawyers. So when they want to... Uh, uh, they want to launch a product, they need to uh, discuss, do a lot of discussion before it goes public, 
because you know like uh, last time they uh, they have some uh, product launch and then then the public opinion um, like uh, some are like good some are not good so it's not really really uh, favorable for them so now like uh, when they talk about uh, policy they have their a lot of uh, standards for the policy how they want to launch how they develop the product how they work with these uh, uh, developers, how to engage the developers into the whole process, and uh, they they are not only talking about the technical aspect. They're talking about the human, like uh, the interaction. So the one thing that I, for me, is very special is like uh, they are doing the customer centric, the user centric approach for creating the privacy issues, uh, the privacy uh, policy for them. So how, like uh, for example. For example, just like a quick example, how you can get the data from the people, like uh, how much data can you get? And uh, like, uh, and uh, if you want to create an app, like uh, what needs to be done? You need to make uh, like, um, uh, they, they have uh, like a certain requirement that your product can go into the Google app. Uh, because if you are taking so much data from, for example, you're taking so much data without the, the consent of the uh, users, then it is wrong. So they, they have that a lot of parameters, which I'm not really uh, familiar or with all of them. I'm familiar with uh, some of them only, like, uh, uh, like uh, who, what is like uh, the personal data, for example. What is like, uh, they look at the different uh, laws from different countries, they look from um, the the general like uh, the global the global framework like for example OECD framework like uh, how to get the uh, data from the customer and uh, they they work so hard for that and uh, and then and then they they trying to uh, they are trying to work out how you can get the data uh, using the non identifiable uh, method so you so if it can be done that way then you should go that way. So they, they are working on it. There's still so much thing because every day there are always like a new products coming up from like, a, you know, like a from Silicon Valley's hundreds of thousands of products coming out from there. And then some of them are acquired by Google or Facebook or different like a big company. So they really work so hard and they have a lot of communities. And now they are uh, going to different countries and trying to introduce this to uh, different countries. So if you want to, like uh, for example, you want to be part of this uh, Google product, then you have to meet this requirement. So that's part of the, the effort that they, they're trying to. I'm not, I, I'm not really like, a, like a saying that Google or Facebook is perf are perfect. Mm -hmm. like, uh, they still have like, uh, some business interest too, which I don't know what is behind the scene. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, at least they are trying to do that. And, for example, in case of Indonesia, like uh, in Indonesia, the government is trying to uh, develop some bills for the ICT, and uh, they are trying to see like, uh, oh, well, um, in global world, uh, you should not do this, and then they are trying to push what is the right way of doing stuff. So, so there are a lot of discussion and negotiation going on at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Do anybody else have any comments on on self-regulation. <laughs> Where do you go to, to, if you come up with, a, if there's a quandary like this, who do you call? Who do you want to talk to to get advice? We talk to each other. <laughs> so uh, I think policymakers are unlikely to keep up. 
think that just just reality. If we if we go to look at you know regulations, the the EU and UK sort of talk about banning cookies and whatever, and it's essentially meaningless. All it does is make an annoying pop up on the thing. Um, but you just see again as a, when you when you start things up, the the tools that are available to enable you to collect everything about your users. So you'd be we we were alarmed at what you can collect a little bit, and you can sort of what you click on, where you look at, where your eyes are likely to go, and, and tracking all of that right down to watching your mouse move around the screen in real time and pop up and chat to you and all that sort of thing. And you sort of decide, okay, what do we... Um, our decisions are made by what's, what do we think is okay, but also what do we think is creepy, because that would like, put off users anyway. And uh, to me, what's even kind of worse than that is the, the really large companies are the ones providing uh, the tools. So they're not just getting uh, a single website's information, but Google sort of aggregating Google Analytics data across almost everyone's website. So, they, so they're able to kind of mix and match data and put together these hugely valuable picture of what the individual's life is like and what their wants are like. And, you know, and with that kind of new data analytics, how I don't know if anyone's heard the story about the, the, the target big data analysis where they identified the identified the girl as being pregnant and her dad called up and yelled. Is, is everyone familiar with that? The dad called. So, so they did a big data analysis. They'd kind of um, worked out that if, if women were buying certain combinations of products, that probably meant they were pregnant and they'd sent sort of a discount letter to her house saying, um, congratulations, you're expecting. Here's a special discount offer to come and buy a, a, you know, a pram or something. And her dad went storming down to Kata, came out and said, no, this isn't true, I can't believe you'd send this, this is so emotional, and then it turned out she was pregnant. So she, so Target knew before the dad, so, so that people were able to collect this kind of, oh, I know that didn't really answer the question, sorry, we went off on No, that. no. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Good story. So, yeah, my, my view is that the policies can't keep up, the cultural norms of, of, of programmers are probably more important, and also... When companies get really big, the commercial blowback if they do the wrong thing. Wow. And talking about regulation, I mean, there's no... Um, Adrian, with your product, you're really... Um, I mean, what bigger discussion, what more important question is there than democracy and sustaining that and, and yeah. building trust in our democracy, especially now at the moment in this historical moment, I think, in particular. So, and how would you, you've been flung into the limelight recently, how have you been engaging with policymakers and, and government representatives? Yep, um, so around the data retention, um, so the data that we're trying to protect is, what well, we are protecting is votes, yeah? So if you look at what's important in voting at the moment, it's and it's evolved over time, but you need to maintain the voter anonymity, which is something very hard to do when you're transitioning into an electronic voting system. And the way that we've designed our system has protect, protects the system even from us. So there is no, we don't see anything different from the public um, because we aim to have the public, anyone in the public act as a scrutineer in the total count of the vote. So, and that has introduced its own issues because we want everything to be open source and transparent and also protect voter anonymity. But from a business perspective, we need to consider how we're actually going to build a business around that so that we can protect ourselves from anyone or larger incumbents just coming in and ripping us off. <laughs> so that, in, um, that introduces the issue of software patents. Mm -hmm. And 
we're in active discussions at the moment about how we're actually going to tackle this. Like we, our initial approach would to be just hit the market first and build the best service around our, our product. But is that realistic? We don't even know yet. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's an ethical dilemma that I'm having at the moment, I guess. Yeah, and um, in tackling the political landscape, uh, I guess I've had to rely on a lot of mentors on how to do that because I haven't. This this is one of the issues that I'm actually trying to solve um, in in the broader public. I haven't been actively engaged in politics through my youth because I've just felt felt disconnected from it. And what I aim to do is actually connect the youth to, like, actually having a say because de democracy is a system of government where the people voice their opinion and I really don't feel like that's being achieved right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah, um, yeah to, uh, so, so much to say. Um, <laughs> firstly, there's a, there's, a kind of a, there's kind of a set of democratic theoretical principles of inclusion, debate defined by reason and reciprocal agreement um, that are that are, that is understood to be the best kind of democratic conversation that you can have. And uh, when you look at organisations like the Internet Engineering Task Force, they have in, they've incorporated those principles very effectively. And um, you know, it, it sounded as as a um, that's what you were talking about as well. And it's certainly like again, um, Adrian, with the public nature of blockchain it's the same thing that you're talking about like let's allow it for it to be like a public record and everybody to have an opportunity to engage engage with this and i think in far of what you can legislate um you're right in terms of legislation can't keep up with the changes that need to happen but there could be some legislation about these are the standards we expect you know in terms of corp you know corporate change corporate law and a, a corollary of that is I've just had a student come back from Silicon Valley and he was like, it's complete slash and burn there in terms of what people will steal from each other in terms of patents and, and ideas. Um, so gonna be able to, in, a, in a startup sense, if we got a patent, we couldn't protect it in the first place. It's probably not worth the investment. Yeah, in some ways you're kind of putting <laughs> your hands up and yeah. saying like, here, check this out. So, it, it, you know, it'd be nice to think that there's some, there may be some way of kind of legislative uh, action to protect the way decisions are made or the routine that companies ought to pursue in order to... Like, you think about the um, International Convention for the Assignment of Names and Numbers, for instance, which is the organisation that decides which web address gets what IP address. Um, you know, the disputes over that are immense, and they have to have really rigid principles of who can participate and who, what kind of information they take on board. Um, and they succeed, you know, they do it with generally without any great problems. So I think that there are tools to do it. They're just, you know, the tools themselves have to be somewhat flexible. Um, yes, I'm not sure if I answered everybody's question. Can I add something? Yeah, of course, please. Um, there's a dilemma. I'm, I'm trying to see it from the, um, from the startup uh, community uh, that I, or as you were talking about, like, like uh, okay, there's uh, something um, that the you know, like a startup, they want to grow, right? And they are so dependent on to the uh, the venture capitalists, uh, angel investors, and all those people. And um, one thing that 
I found it common among these people who give the money. They want to get. They are quite hungry to data. They want to get as much as data uh, possible from the startups. So this is kind of dilemma because the startup. Um, well, I want to do the right thing. I want to be clean. But then, oh well, you don't have enough data. How can you move on? Like uh, we cannot invest more to you. We, you won't be. You are too slow. You are not being able to be innovative. You don't get this a lot of data that uh, some startup like a like a we we got a lot of we have developed a lot of uh, communities of practice where we are educating the startups. Uh, what would be the best practice? What would be like a the policy that you need to follow? Well, it is even though it is just a starting point, but they have grown their uh, awareness and their knowledge. But then, okay, now what should I do? Like, uh, should I go with the right thing, or should I just rip off all the customer data and then, like, uh, just to satisfy the needs of the investors so I can get more money? So that's the dilemma, and they they usually like uh, choose the other way. But you know, so I thought I thought Andrew's response earlier was really interesting, and it's yeah. kind of said that we decided to have this principled approach, which then made us a more valuable company. Is yes. that can you not argue to the investor that we are going to protect this data because then we will have integrity as a company, and then our company will be more valuable? <coughs> Is this not possible? Um, well, I mean, like uh, I would like uh, I would say it is possible. Like uh, if you. Like, a, but but uh, it's it's quite risky. Like I don't say like uh, all the investors they are bad, but uh, a lot of the investors they are they are focusing some some investors they are focusing as like a company builders instead of the founders uh, ideas builder, and those like uh, uh, investors they are just like uh, I don't really care about you like, uh, and especially if they are not educated, they grew up in an environment where money is just. The only reasons why they were there, mm. and um, yeah, so that's that's a dilemma for a lot of startup. I don't say that all investors like that, mm. but uh, yeah. I found a lot of the investors like that. So it's caused a lot of dilemma. It's very tempting when you're small to take the money, right? So exactly. when when you, by the time you get up to about two million a year in revenue. Everett, there's 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 billions and trillions of dollars around the world looking for a home, and everyone wants to invest. Uh, I so I hear we're not there yet. <laughs> Before that, you sort of ask anyone to please give us some money, and and um, and they want unre- they want venture capital returns for uh, bank level risk. So uh, you know, there's this <laughs> that that's being unfair to like angel investors and things. But there's, you know, there's there's a temptation to dive in too early. But I think the better you do and the further you go down without committing to someone, um, you can interview investors and only work with people that you want to. Yeah. And that's definitely the advice I've been given from investors is don't take the money the first time someone offers you money, find someone who shares your values and wants to work with you on the, the way you want to work. Yeah. But you know, as a startup, you, you just, you know, you, the amounts of money are different than when you're dealing with a normal company. People will say, oh, well, maybe we invest 10 grand in this, 15 grand in this. Some days it's like 500 bucks in the bank and you're trying to work out you know, how to make it to next week, let alone. So it's, it's hard if someone comes along and says, I'll give you 50,000 as long as you rip that guy off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I thought was so interesting, when I first kind of started being involved in the startup world, I think I had a lot of misconceptions. I thought, oh yeah, the aim is to come up with this high growth business idea and then kind of 
get a VC, a venture capitalist investing as soon as possible and, and float it on the stock market. And actually, actually, when you engage, certainly in the Western Australian startup scene, you know, these um, men and women leading these companies, they want to keep it, you know, the idea, of, um, the idea of bootstrapping, which is when you do everything you can to control your company for as long as you can. Um, and I, I haven't really made the connection when it comes to you, when it comes to things like ethics and control over your own culture of your company, what a, yeah, what a huge influence that would have. So we, we actually had a situation not that long ago when someone wanted to put in sufficient cash into our company that they could get a board seat. And we had to sort of have the internal discussion, wow, this would really be a big change for us, that be, would be great. But then we've got <coughs> someone to report to that gets an influence and we eventually said, let's not do it. <laughs> And that's a hard decision to make. Hopefully it does not fall flat on its face. But I think we'd love to take a question from the floor if anybody has got a question. I've, I can see a couple. Well, I'll go one here too. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll bring the mic over so you, can, okay. you don't just speak right into it. I actually might be over here to bring hers okay. as well. Yeah, hi. Really interesting points. And I guess I wanted to ask, touching on some of Eunice and Tall's ideas. So my background is, is in researching leadership and teaching like leadership and critical thinking and ethics to postgraduate business students most recently. And one of the two, one of the, I guess, tensions in the discussion, there seem to be two poles between the kind of what I think of as a fairly optimistic good news story side in the leadership, which is that correctly understood in a leadership role or in a startup role ethics will eventually serve you well so you see ideas like say authentic leadership which says look you may think that ethics will constrain you but actually long story short it will um, help you it's quite it's a very optimistic story and a lot of people I think postgraduate um, middle management business students that I do with or leadership um, leadership types tend to to some level have ex- internalized that but also internalize the opposite pole which is ethics are a constraint on your kind of prudential objectives, that they will actually, that they're the right thing to do for your soul, but they'll hold you back in terms of your productivity and your achievements. So I guess I'm really interested to ask what you guys think, if either of those ring true to you or what you think about that tension, maybe? Well, definitely it's an ongoing discussion as well. Uh, me as like a partly like a industry and academic as well. And um, yeah, one of the reasons like is like uh, the developers especially they don't like ethics because it's like a inhibit uh, innovation mm-hmm. and you know like uh, well we can't do this we can't do that there's so many things like uh, going on so um well it's still going on like <laughs> there's no one like uh, have the like uh, exact answer what needs to be done but uh, the question would be like uh, do you want to go to the market or not and if if they say if they say yes, like uh, which market do you want to target? Like, uh, do you want to go through, say, for example, I'm give another uh, uh, again example. You want to go to Google, or do you want to market your product yourself? Like, uh, if you want to go to Google, then uh, you need to follow through all the requirements because I I find a lot of developers they spend a lot of time and a lot of effort to create like uh, some apps and some products for a year, and they just got ready to put it in the Google app, oh, sorry, Google, uh, Google Play, and they could not do it, just could not do it for no reason because it doesn't comply. So they did not go through um, the process of uh, looking at what is required, what the requirement, because what happened with them is right away uh, 
doing the coding and and then for me it's not following the UX process because you need to with the UX process you need to know like uh, what's your company uh, philosophy need of the users and what other you know like uh, what are the requirements from the policy makers or so to make you a successful company so basically what I'm saying here is like uh, just to be balanced like uh, to look to have your eyes on your head like uh, the front side <laughs> side back everything then you know what is going on and then you make a decision and that's why you need like a strong CEO to help you like uh, to make a plan like uh, we had a discussion about the CEO things like uh, in the beginning with Andrew like uh, yeah it was you need to have somebody like uh, who are able to see uh, the the overall things what is going on there yeah. so you can't retrofit a series of values <laughs> after the fact no <laughs> absolutely <laughs> does anyone else have a comment yeah, Sorry, yeah. Oh, um, yeah well I I think this comes back to to what Andrew was saying before that you want to work with the people that share your vision and are interested in keeping um, getting the most long-term value out of your company. So a story I was just thinking of then when you brought this up was we were approached through a private equity firm by someone in Botswana who had a connection with the Botswana president and wanted to make his <laughs> legacy on the company to introduce electronic voting. And if we were to go through that, we would have, like, our brand wouldn't be presented around it and we would have no trail of where any of the money was actually going. Mm-hmm. So I guess that comes to short-term value versus long-term values for what we wanted to create out of our company. So we believe that we need to prove ourselves in a country with a strong democracy like Australia before we reach out into the world where our solution will probably have the most impact in countries where you can't trust your government. So that's probably the most serious ethical um, decision I've had to make and I think it's the right decision for the long-term value of the company as well. (laughs) So uh, I think both are right. So that you definitely have constraints ethically that hurt you short-term one one kind of cycle and then that can be it that can be with a new a new client that you decide to take or don't take you know a big military deal or something if someone wanted you know software to control autonomous robots so you definitely definitely can have a poor immediate impact on you but i saw some interesting research that had um kind of a link between the strength of organizational culture and long-term success of a business and it tends to be very strong, and that's why bigger companies spend huge amounts of money to try and, you know, come up with posters that, in, you know, let's let's get the seven values. And 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 in a lot of in a lot of circumstances, I, I don't know how many companies you worked for, but in a lot of the time, it feels like lip service, and it's not that's not what you experience from the inside. And uh, the prevalence of social media means it's often not what people think on the outside either anymore. So it's harder to kind of maintain the facade of a good culture and a good kind of ethic long term. So I think if you establish proper cultural norms and you've got strong ethics internally, then you end up with more loyal, more loyal staff that stick around. And, and if you get good staff and they stick around, you're going to do better more loyal customers, so if you happen to stuff something up and you turn around and say, oh yeah, we stuff something up, they stick around. Um, and external people are more likely to want to help you because they, they understand the sort of company that you are and this sort of stuff feeds back into you. So um, having made a lot of these choices ourselves, I'm hoping that the long-term success is directly tied to, <laughs> to, to treating it as important. Um, yeah, okay, I dealt with this in a recent article that I wrote and. Um, 
Not really about ethics, but I would I would say this that it's really important that you understand the value that the social benefit for creating a system of ethics and a system of difference. And my article is about how big it's called the what is it. Uh, the Big Data Public and Its Problems, which is a med- meditation on Dewey. And it was basically the argument I was making was that big data essentially creates a society of sameness because big data analysis tends to moderate things towards the largest number all the time. And so whatever you're applying that analysis for, particularly if it is for business, you tend to move your focus towards that largest number and the greatest mean. And what that does is it tends to d- diminish difference. People see what is most important to most people most of the time. And it might be most people within a kind of particular enclave, but it's always, it it tends to actually remove difference. We get more US presidential election news now via our smartphones than we used to via our newspapers and televisions. Yeah? Because that is most interesting to most people. And what you eliminate then is a whole heap of local differences. And philosophically, and from a position of a public, what's really important is those differences. Um, so I would say, considering you're working at university, this is one of the last places where you can resist that generalisation. You all have to chase money. What matters is what matters to most people and what is most profitable. Um, so whether or not... Obviously, your students won't be successful if they ignore what's profitable, but at the same time, they have every other influence in their life telling them that that's what matters. So you have an opportunity to say... Other things matter too, and I would say don't resist that opportunity. Make sure you take it because you're their only hope. (laughs) 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 Well, then, of course, you know, if if we're all people who think the same way, if you get a group of people um, from the same background who think the same way, uh, that is, this is, we know that this is not how great ideas and innovations happen. We know that from you know, from history. Um, yeah, in, innovation and disruption in a way, or maybe we may need new terms for what for this activity that we're trying to uh, do or, or these things we're trying to achieve because innovation is quite a morally ambiguous word, you know, in, in many ways. Disruption certainly is. It's, is it good? Is it bad? And I guess everyone's always going to have different perspectives. But um, I'll uh, we'll get another question from the floor, perhaps. I thought there was one other question. Yeah, great. Yeah, sure. I'm being a really stupid question, so please just forgive me for that. Um, what can what can good government meaningfully do uh, in order to assist and promote ethical decision making within startups? Uh, avoid reliance on VCs. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, well, with that being said, I think that investment into the community needs to be led by industry and supported by government rather than the other, other way around. Uh, I don't know, I'd go the other yeah. way. So there's sort of state government investment in startups and I guess there's a summit coming up for where that money could go. I'd say if you want to know how to spend it the most efficiently and go and let startups make ethical decisions, then just almost helicopter money. You know, you've got $20 million that could support. You could give a million dollars to 20 startups or... Hundred thousand dollars to two hundred startups. That's a, that's a lot of kind of money that would then take the pressure off going and trying to kowtow to specific uh, interests. <laughs> so, yeah. so um, from a policy perspective, I might 
handball that to someone clever. What about microfinance? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> what about microfinance kind of peer lending and, and things like that? I mean, is that not a way to make your product... Uh, you know, like the whole idea of making something public and then that makes sure that you have to stick to your principles. Do you know what I mean? You kind of declare this is what we're interested in and try and attract money, you know, mum and dad investors or whatever. Maybe. So there's... Um there's sort of three different way paths you can go when you're trying to spend all your time. So there's two things you don't have, money and time. <laughs> and yes. you, can, you can either spend your time trying to get grants and win competitions, and there's sort of certain questions that pop up in these questionnaires all the time which don't really help your business and you really have to learn how to answer those questions. Or you can get investor-ready and they've got a whole set of, you've got to go around and network with all the investors and meet them and kind of get their statistics in line with what they want and those sorts of things. Or <coughs> you can get market ready. And it's sort of, it's really hard to do all three at once. And, and we've basically said, okay, if I'm going to spend my time on one of those three, it's going to be on market. Yeah. So whereas if you if, you know, a lot of the Kickstarter type campaigns, they're spending a lot of time and effort on a Kickstarter campaign, not on developing a product. And it's so easy to get to market now. It's, uh, you would think that the hardest thing is getting someone to find your product. It's actually really easy. You pay someone $3 on a pay-per-click ad and they've found your product. So it's, it's making a good product and have people stick around and, and want to use it is harder. So if you could give us time and money, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> you had a, did you have a slightly different view or...? Well, if you look at the most sex successful startup um, like areas in the world, um, I, th I think Tel Aviv is probably doing the best job at it, where the government lends five to one. Uh, it's industry-led, but the zero zero percent loans to the startups through to government after the industry leads the investment in the startups, and it's something like the the number, the amount of money spent on the startup from the government is five to one to industry. Yeah, wow. and but. Every environment is unique and you can't necessarily just take what works in one place and bring it here. Um, it's, the Perth's ecosystem is in its infancy, so we need to figure out what's going to work here. And I, by no means am I an expert on it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's an interesting tension, isn't there, between... So obviously policymakers and governments are finding it hard to keep up with this change. You've got the... Um, startup community themselves who have their own challenges especially when it comes to investors and and data and often you know we talked about Google with a lot of the Google products obviously the the data is the the product is, is how they're making a lot of revenue so but but then we've also got our consumers and of course if either if the government as regulators or the um, industry as self-regulators uh, are not um, managing consumer expectations, of course, we can stop buying the product. Or, and, and I guess we see that anxiety sometimes coming out when, when Facebook releases a new privacy policy or, um, you know, and, and for, it's kind of with Uber, but it's, yeah, sometimes that convenience and ease of use trumps our own ethical, I think, um, values as consumers. And I said before, I've used Uber, I've used Airbnb. Absolutely. Am I concerned with Uber and the <laughs> impact on the labour market? Yeah, very concerned. I'm really concerned about the social, I mean, the sharing economy myself. And yet I used Uber yesterday. So <laughs> I need to reconcile this within my own <laughs> mind as well. 
Um, now we've got about, we've got a couple of minutes left. I wouldn't mind if, if you'd all might like a, a final word um, to, a, around the topic. Um, I wonder, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, Eunice, a little bit, but since you're nearest to me, okay. would you like to just say a, a couple of words just to conclude or raise anything that you haven't raised yet? Um, well, actually, I would like to address what your question before. Um, and also your question, your, your <laughs> comment, because I've been working with a lot of uh, transportation industry companies like Uber and all those others. <laughs> so I know how the things like I'm looking at from a different, um, like a stakeholders, like a, the users, the driver, the company themselves, like a, what actually shape the whole ecosystem of a sharing economy thing. Uh, the first one is like a, right now, like uh, the government position is on the top, really top. And then, uh, as mentioned before, like uh, you probably just have uh, some uh, policy and then just really like uh, uh, have uh, like a summit probably once a year or something like that. As um, like a like a working in a, with different com uh, uh, different countries, like uh, uh, what quite similar, what is quite similar uh, between Australia and other like a country like this is like uh, the freedom of speech, like uh, people want to contribute, people want to talk. And uh, what I learned uh, a lot is like uh, when I was in Scandinavia, like uh, when we have a lot of uh, public consultancy, like uh, where the government really go down into the grassroots level, like uh, opening like a forum for the people to contribute. And then the government support, like uh, putting some money like uh, to grow the startup ecosystem. And then also like uh, when, when you are there and then you're creating such kind of like a stronger community for the people and you can actually have more like a data for you, what, how you can uh, develop your policy. So we are all will be on the same page. Like uh, that would e that would be easier for you to make like a uh, up to date, you know, decision what needs to be done. And I saw that has been working so much. Uh, like uh, the, it worked well in Scandinavian countries, and uh, I believe it works here as well. And um, and and the the education will like. Uh, flow as it is and also like a with in 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 response to the uber thing actually i used to feel oh well they got only small salary like a compared to the the taxi driver so for example like that but i've done hundreds of interviews to like a driver um uber driver or other sharing economies uh drivers i don't feel i don't feel guilty anymore yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because yeah. for them, it's a new opportunity to get a job. Yeah, this and, it certainly uh, does provide yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of them. Well, probably the taxi company, they are not happy. But, well, this is like a different world. Come on, wake up. This is like a different world. It's not uh, like, um, it's, it is to be the economy, the world needs to be shared, not just like uh, owned by certain people. So that's my mm -hmm. thought. Yep. I, I agree. It's a competitive world from the startup perspective. Um, and as an entrepreneur, you walk around and you see all of these problems and you want to solve them and create the most value for the people who are going to be doing things. And in, like from a workfo workforce perspective, it's just the jobs of tomorrow are going to be different than the jobs of today and different skills are going to be needed in the future. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yep.
Thank you. So I disagree. I, um, <laughs> and it just sort of comes back to the question about policy. I think there's real temptation to look at the technology it's, as being the disruption and saying, oh, well, this is game-changing. And I, th I think a lack of understanding of the technology makes people kind of almost hoodwinked into assuming that this is a whole new question. The reality is the same question as it always was. You know, what's, what sort of regulation do we need of a vehicle in order for someone to give someone else a ride? So the fact that it's done through smartphones, I mean, taxis can do that too. So we've really sort of said, oh, no, now that it's popular, we, now we have to let this happen. So I'd hate to think that we sort of um, let long histories of fighting for sort of labour rights and this kind of thing just get shunted out the way because now someone can, can do it through technology from the other side of the world. So it's not, it's, a lot of these questions aren't new questions. Um, it's just easier to break the regulations. So like minimum wages, if I want to pay someone $3 an hour to code for me, I can go on Odesk and find a, an, an Indian or Chinese guy who will code whatever I want really cheaply. Whether that's a good idea as a company is another question. But, um, so it's probably not for us. But for other things like uh, you know, personal assistance and those kinds of technological disruptions, you can outsource the work overseas and kind of circumvent minimum wage and that sort of thing. But the question with things like Uber, and I'm on the opposing side of this debate to, to my staff, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, my view is that in other markets where there is not so much regulation, the new Uber disruption hasn't actually disrupted and the incumbent usually does better. And the reason is because there's a lot more to business than the technology is having the, the staff in place and the resources in place and the facilities in place and, and a lot of these sorts of things. So with our product where we're trying to help people be start an Uber or turn their company into an Uber-like company, a lot of the times the stronger competitor is the incumbent, not someone who's starting from scratch. Whereas in taxis there was obviously this big regulation and, and that kind of thing. So it's kind of, you know, two different questions. Thank you. Tall, final word from you. <laughs> Yeah. I can't possibly follow that. Up. <laughs> um, look, I, <laughs> I keep dwelling on Uber. I think I try Uber because taxi drivers really upset me with things that they would say. You'd get in there and they'd be captive, a cat, your captive audience, and all of a sudden they're saying all these misogynistic and racist <laughs> things that you know you kind of resist, but at the same time they've got you at their mercy, and you're, you know, so there is an issue there. I, I, t I kind of totally agree with what Andrew just said, but there is still an issue. I think technology is inherently disruptive uh, uh, in in every industry, and everybody is facing the same thing. And the thing that you have to make sure, and which is something that everybody's kind of referred to, is that you're providing something for your technology. And I think that uh, for, sorry, for your customer or for, for whatever market you're working for, and you can articulate that. And I think that one thing that um, maybe university education can, or university research can help do is help articulate this is what adds value to your particular product. Like I read Andrew's um, web page before this because I was interested. And I mean, it was mind blowing in terms of the possibility, like the ways you could sell what he's doing. Um, I mean, Adrian's obviously speaks for itself and Eunice Career does as well. But so all of these things have incredible potential. And I think it's about articulating what the value beyond the, the cost is, uh, the social value or the cultural value. Um, in order to make sure that you take care of revenue and, and so on.
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think you wrapped it up beautifully. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our panel. I, this is, yeah, one of my favourite conversations. Um, and, and thanks for everyone for coming today. Um, absolutely terrific. Please give them a hand. <laughs>